What are the things, some of the things that you've learned uh, over the years about about energy, energy production? The footprint required and the, the inert destruction that a wind farm, for instance, in comparison to what something related to the oil and gas world are, is a stark contrast. Uh, I remember the, the windmill project I did just over in Uniontown, PA. It's it's pretty rural, lots of mountain, mountain laurel, thick forested, and you know I remember driving up there as a teenager and things like that, going going to enjoy the mountains, and then. You know, when I got the call for that job to go up there and seeing an entire mountaintop being completely leveled, all deforested, you see what it takes to install one of those. And then to this day, I drive by them and occasionally see them turning and think of the disruption that we cost to an entire ecosystem for a dozen windmills. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Welcome to another episode of American Potential, and uh, thanks for joining us once again. You know, we hear and we read the headlines about the energy energy regulations that come out of Washington, D.C. Now, these bad government policies, they're driving up the cost of everyday life for Americans. It seems easy for the Biden administration to kind of wave a magic wand and implement new regulations on the oil and gas industry. But make no mistake, you will pay the cost of those regulations. And while we may complain about having to pay more for energy, how do those regulations affect the real people and families that work in the industry? Well, today's guest hasn't just lived in an energy-producing town where his dad and uncles worked in a coal mine, but he's also worked in every aspect of the energy industry, from oil and gas to renewable energy. He has seen the direct effects that regulations can have on a community. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Matt Thomas, to the show. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, how's it going? Good. Good. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, so, first of all, I guess talk a little bit about uh, your family gr- uh, working in a coal mine. Yeah. Um, my father, several of my uncles, um, they started working out in the coal mines not long after uh, some of them came back from either high school or getting out, getting discharged from uh, Vietnam. You know, the economy back then was was poor, to say the least, due to a lot of different issues. And, you know, the only real producing jobs back then were in the energy or the steel sectors. And that's where they ended up ultimately going and uh, worked a substantial portion of their lives in those industries. Several of them did retire from those fields my dad worked in the uh in the coal mine on and off over about 30 years and uh ultimately it was uh, a little bit of his physical demise where uh, he was injured um, several years prior to his retirement and uh, had a roof collapse come in on him and uh, damaged his shoulder and uh, neck and back severely and uh, was forced into an early retirement now I assume the 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 town that you're from as well was fairly reliant as well on on mining. 
Um, tell us about the town, you know, as the, as the coal mine was, was up and running at its, at its peak. So, uh, Waynesburg in general was a, uh, classic small town America where, you know, uptown near the courthouse had all the shops, um, significant amount of, uh, restaurants, um, bars, different things like that. A lot of the uh, social clubs were kind of housed around there. The coal mine was just a few miles out of town and there were several other access point portals that uh, kind of allowed as entrance places to uh, other portions of the mine, depending on what sections they worked in. You know, that, that town had numerous shops and restaurants that thrived because of the, the industry that was there. And, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship when you have that sort of energy industry there and along with those type of shops. So, you know, I mean, school shopping was done in your small town. You know, there weren't really your your corporate stores like your Walmarts and things like that. Back in the day, you used to have to drive, you know, 20 to 30 miles away to go to something like that. So the small town little men's stores and ladies dress shops and things like that and the little local locker room place, you know, that's that's where a lot of the people in the county went and spent their spent their hard-earned money yeah so tell me now that after the the family um you know after the coal mine shut down what did it do to the town and of course what did it do to your family well the the immediate impacts were you know loss of that tax base for the county so you know immediately within a few years the the taxes started to change oil and gas wasn't really a, a big thing at that point so you know there was pretty close to a decade where you know the the cost of living significantly increased the amount of shops and and restaurants and things like that that were all support structures for that town slowly started to disappear and then you know with the uh with the advent of um corporate stores coming in like a, a walmart came into that town and uh you know it it really made a significant impact because there there was that opportunity for them to come in and you know kind of seize the area per se because all the little shops were being driven out due to lack of incomes in the area a lot of a lot of people did you know even leave because of those issues and what about your your family specifically? I mean, that obviously the coal mine shut down affected them. What did they have to do? So my dad, um, you know, growing up in hard times and uh, coming from a, a poor rural background, I mean, he did what anyone would do, and he he found another job. Um, he was skilled at uh, truck driving, so he did that for a little while, and then um, he was also a uh, a good concrete finisher and he actually went and joined the uh, cement masons union down in pittsburgh and he worked all over the area building various infrastructures in between layoffs from the coal mine and you know he was kind of fortunate that he could he could occasionally bounce back and forth between that and was ultimately able to get uh, a pension from both of those um organizations you know the the coal mine union and the uh the cement finishers union but um you know there was a lot of hard times there was there was times where you know we were not just living off the land because we wanted to 
you know, growing our own fruits and vegetables and harvesting, you know, wild game and things like that, there was an absolute need that we had to. You know, we had a had a small farm. We raised chickens and hogs and uh, and cattle as well, things like that. And I mean, we we survived because that's you know what was ingrained into us because of the the nature of that type of work. You know, the, the energy industry of today, I don't believe, or I do believe, is more secure in some instances than it was you know twenty thirty years ago. Now, you've worked in all different types of energy, all kinds of different sectors of energy. What are the things, some of the things that you've learned uh, over the years about, about energy, energy production? Well, the, the footprint required and the, the inert destruction that a wind farm, for instance, carries with it in comparison to what something related to the oil and gas world are is a stark contrast. Uh, I remember the, the windmill project I did just over in Uniontown, PA, and uh, I was called over there, and I was familiar with the area. It's it's up on top of the mountain, pretty rural, lots of mount, mountain laurel, thick forested, and you know I remember driving up there as a teenager and things like that, going going to enjoy the mountains, and then you know when I got the call for that job to go up there and seeing a the entire mountaintop being completely leveled all deforested i mean just general destruction and you know you get up there on that job and you see what it takes to install one of those and then to this day i drive by them and you know occasionally see them turning and think of the disruption that we caused to an entire ecosystem for a dozen windmills to what end and it- and compare that really to, you know, a, a, a fracked well, for instance, and we'll get into that a little bit, but, you know, the, the very small impact, surface impact that a fracking well has these days, as opposed to maybe what it had 30 or 40 years ago, but comparing that to a wind farm is, is pretty substantial, isn't it? it? It is because, you know, under the footprint of that wind farm, you, you can't allow anything to reach certain heights due to maintenance aspects. It can't be overforested or overgrown, things like that. The the well pad, you know, once a frac site, once it's established, you know, the footprint's generally small, you know, several hundred feet by several hundred feet. Some are significantly smaller than that, depending on, you know, the output per per well site and region. And, you know, you have an access road that's got appropriate drainage and things like that. And Everything is vegetated um, after it's built, reseeded, mulched, landscaped to be at least relatively appealing to the eye. And within weeks of a site being completed and vegetation coming up, you see wildlife starting to come back in and reestablish. You know, if there's any tree displacement or anything like that, you know, there that is all replaced in a lot of instances. And and the other side of that is, you know, it's it's per the landowners requirements a lot of times. I mean, I've worked on several sites where, you know, they wanted to develop better wildlife habitat and that gave them the opportunity because the heavy lifting was done by the oil and gas industry to, you know, put a series of food plots or apple orchards or things like that, that were, you know, more beneficial to the wildlife in the area than just having a a blank piece of ground again, you know, but at the end of the day, it's seeded and mulched and there's green vegetation 
within 15 to 30 days on most of those sites upon completion. So, you know, you look at the uh, hard impact of the deforestation and the continued maintenance and upkeep. And, you know, without the oil and gas industry, there is no wind, there is no solar because all of their products are built off of the building blocks of oil and gas. You can't have one without the other. Right. Uh, what what are some of the some of the energy regulations that you've seen over the last many years, I guess, or other factors that have had an impact on the energy industry? In general, you know, legislative permitting is one of the largest issues that any of the industry sectors ultimately face. And oil and gas and coal mines are held under a very high scrutiny in comparison to some of the other um energy sectors out there you know they're not so they're not as federally subsidized in a lot of instances so you know dealing with the areas and footprints those are heavily regulated you know our own governor here in pennsylvania has pushed through legislation regarding pushing back the um, the lengths in which wells can be drilled to and versus proximities and things of that nature, you know, which which continually pushes them out of those sweet spots to get the, the best gaps or capitalize on, you know, the the most singular footprint to establish those wellheads. You know, drilling technology has gone leaps and bounds in the last 15 years compared to what it once was. And like anything, it's only going to get better. But at the end of the day, when regulation stifles progress, you end up having a recipe for disaster. And that's what we're seeing right now with with a lot of these um, people that are unfriendly to energy and more environmentally friendly than than they think. Well, and as you as you talked about, uh, you know, some energies or or some sectors are subsidized more heavily, um, you know, solar, uh, wind particularly, but they don't seem to have as great of concern about regulating some of that stuff as they do on oil and gas. It seems like oil and gas particularly is singled out uh, and has much harder regu- environmental regulation than some of these wind farms particularly or solar farms do. They do. You know, those those regulations not only slow energy's progress which without energy we're never gonna we're never gonna advance as a as a society and and go to the next level of you know whatever intelligence we seek um you you can't have well let me back up if you look at you know during world war ii the advancements that were made and immediately after the nuclear age was established you can see a rapid growth and expansion of mankind's knowledge for the sciences and generating various types of energies and power sources and things you know but at the end of the day coal and natural gas are something that the earth has and produces naturally and it is a sustainable energy source if properly managed and maintained you know, you, you can't sit there and think that your resources are finite when they're not. If, if it's not managed properly, there are consequences. But, 
you know, with the way things are going on modern oil and gas sites and the way they're maintained and the way they are taken care of, you know, these things are legacy lines that are being installed that are not only going to support us and our children, but, you know, three or four different generations ahead, depending on how they're installed and the way they're installed. What's the what's the biggest energy producer in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania? Natural gas is the largest energy producer in in Green County currently. It is. Or coal coal mining is, you know, still there's a few mines left that are open, but they're slowly dwindling away. They they know that they have a lifespan on them. And once that's exhausted, then they can't go into the next deeper set of veins to reestablish those mines and continue to mine for coal and, and go to that industry because of regulation. You know, they don't want them going so deep or they don't want them impacting additional things in the subterranean world. So that's where they've basically just put a wall up and said, this is this is where it's at and this is where it stops. You know, oil and gas doesn't necessarily run into the same sort of hurdles, but, you know, if you look at, at the beginning of the coal industry and its peak in the 80, late 80s and early 90s, when the, that was the number one energy producing substance in the United States, then, you know, you can see how regulation changes that and how it can harness and hold back that that expansion of energy i mean there's there's at least a dozen or more viable coal mines that are closed down right now due to various regulations um, whether it be impacts from the the water act various water acts or different internal zoning regulations that were put in by state and local government so there there's a lot of wheels in motion when you sit back and look at all of the ways that oil and gas and coal have been impacted uh, across the spectrum. And it, it seems like a lot of uh, politicians particularly use regulation to pick winners and losers in the in- energy industry. If they don't like a particular energy sector, they they tend to overregulate it and, and thereby try and do their best to kill it, as opposed to other areas where maybe they don't put as much regulation and maybe not even as much regulation as they should in some areas because they want those to flourish. Do you see that as a problem? That's absolutely a problem. I mean, I think every, every energy, every sector of energy should get its fair shake. I I worked, like I said, in a a lot of different ones. I don't have a large, um, I don't have a large, experience group in the solar side of things that's that's one thing that i didn't get a ton of time in but i I worked in uh, several nuclear fired plants over the course of my career a lot of coal fired plants um, chasing outages and things like that over the years and uh, you know nuclear is obviously the easiest cleanest and fastest producing form of energy we have it's also the most dangerous in my mind um you know, I remember standing on a standing on a mezzanine deck, looking down at the at the reactor pool, and thinking, you know, there's there's a world of hurt laying underneath that water. You know, I never felt that way looking at a pipeline, thinking about how it was 
feeding thousands of people or millions of people, depending on what line it was, you know, with true clean energy. You know, the Mother Nature produces that methane and those different gases every single day. We're just harnessing what the earth is giving us. And we're able to transition that product into so many different things. I mean, right down to the microchips that are being used, you know, to to process this video call right now. All the way to the clothes that you're wearing and beyond. You know, the the industries all have their their right path. And, you know, I mean, we've got 93 nuclear facilities nationwide. But if you look at miles of pipeline and energy produced from that and so on, oil and gas is your number yeah. one producer now, hands down. And Appalachia sits in one of the largest reserves in the entire world. Right. Well, and that's a, as you mentioned, that's a real problem. I think it, it basically comes down to politicians trying to pick winners and losers rather than letting the market decide the winners and losers and the best form of energy best form of energy is the you know the the cheapest one for most people out there and that's who gets hurt by some of these energy regulations is is driving up the cost of energy for people who can least afford it um let me ask you about fracking i mentioned fracking um there's a lot of uh, uh, misinformation out there i think about fracking and uh talk about what fracking is and what are some of the misnomers well, fr- fracking is a form of fractionating the ground to release the actual pressures within that house the gas. You know, that's done by various ways, but it, at the end of the day, it's done under pressure and synthetic fluid is pumped in. And that allows for the establishment of the trunk line going down to tap into that natural gas pocket. You know, the the process itself is relatively simple. You know, it's basically emulsified mud with some additional chemicals in it for st- as stabilizing agents. And it's pumped in as part of the drilling process while they're going downhole. You know, those fluids and everything that's pulled back out of there are cleaned, refined, stored, disposed of all under various regulations that the states and federal governments have. But at the end of the day, it's a safe alternative to what was done originally. You know, the, the way they designed this stuff now, it's, it's incredibly safe and it's an easier process to do than it once was. And, you know, I'm not a fracking expert by any means. I just know what, what I've been around and experienced in my career. But, um, you know, people, people complained about the coal mines and contaminating water. People complain about the frack, the fracking and contaminating water. And I, I, at my core, I don't believe there's any way you can make any amount of progress without having some sort of issue down the line, however large or small it may be. You know, when these issues are found out, the industry goes back, they look at it, and they try to devise a better, safer, more efficient way to do the same thing that they were doing that has less public impact, less impact on Mother Nature, and makes people's lives better. Well, and then it seems like in some of the sectors, the government doesn't seem to care. Like, for instance, 
you know, electric batteries and the lithium that's required to 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 put in some of these batteries. That doesn't seem to bother some people uh, the the same way that that fracking might bother them. And I'd I think I'd make the argument. I'm not an expert on it, but I'd make the argument that some of the some of the lithium mining operations around the world are pro- probably far more destructive than fracking mines. You're absolutely correct in that. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a large segment of the audience that's probably seen, you know, various photos floating around on social media platforms. And, you know, those those pictures are very real. When you look at the depth and destruction and overall footprint that those mines produce in comparison to what we're doing over here. And, you know, I mean, I'm, a, a lot of people have, at least in the energy sectors, ha, ha, have heard of or know of Toby Rice and, you know, his Unleash LNG platform. I, I've listened to it. I've met him personally, shook his hands. He's a very down-to-earth guy, and he has a very, very simple message. And he has the resources, in my opinion, to substantiate what we all needed to know. And, you know, at the end of the day, you've got crazy people like Greta Thunberg running around saying, you know, the world's coming to an end in five years. And I mean, I I remember growing up that, you know, acid rain was going to wash all the paint off our cars and the world was coming to an end 30 years ago. Uh, I turned 40 last month. We're still here. We're still kicking. But the the overregulation of America and the taxpayers does not affect anyone else in the rest of the world. We reduce our carbon footprint, India, China, Pakistan, and the list goes on. Build 10 or 20 to 1 coal-fired fossil fuel plants. And for every carbon unit that we save, they are burning through 100 or more. And there's no regulation over there. The air circulates all over the world. If they're damaging their ecosystem, they're damaging ours. No matter how we try to make things better, if the whole world doesn't get on the same same plan, then you're not going to win. I mean, the, the third world is the third world for a reason. And they are doing what a society does. They're trying to advance. And I don't fault anyone for that. They They want to build their society. They want to build their livelihoods and uplift their people. But... We're being taxed and regulated to death over here because of the third world coming up and other countries coming up. And it's all going on the American tax dollar, the American company. And all of those equate to less money in every man, woman and child's and and future man, woman and child for the American taxpayer out of their paychecks. There's there's nothing going to be nothing left for us if we continue down this path of energy dependence upon either the rest of the world or segments of that world. I mean, we have oil here that we can produce. Why are we not producing gasoline, oil, and kerosene here? Why do we buy it from the Saudis and ship it over here? Well, and, and it's actually capitalism that has has made many of these advancements. You talked about acid rain and some of the, some of the great advance, advances that have been made there. It was a capitalist system. It was industry that came up with a solution and a fix to that. Um, you talked about fracking, you know, getting oil and natural gas out of the ground today is much cleaner, much more efficient and, and safe 
than it was 50 years ago because, again, because of capitalism driving that and finding better ways to do it uh, that, that also are, are better for the environment. Am I right on that? You are. Absolutely right. So do, do lawmakers, you talked about the impact to your, your part of, of Pennsylvania and to your town. Do lawmakers ever come to, to visit your area or are you just kind of a for, more of a forgotten area, just a, you know, a casualty of the war on oil and gas? A little bit of both. It depends on how the election cycle is, because that's generally when you see them <laughs> come around and, you know, hey, I want your vote, sure. you know, and that's. I'm sure that happens across the country everywhere, but you know, here it, it hurts a little bit more because a lot of times they were, you know, they were from this town or that town and, you know, they, they grew up in this yet they've become a part of the system. You know, those jobs aren't coming back when, when coal's done, it's not coming back. I've got a eight to 10 friends that still work in the coal industry and they have made amends with the fact that, you know, they may be second, third, fourth generation coal miners. Their their kids aren't going to walk down that path because it's it's too rocky, it's too rugged, and it's entirely too up and down to have a normal life. What would you ask lawmakers then to do? I mean, if if they if they come to your town or you had any opportunity to talk to them, what would you ask them to do? I would ask them first how do you live your life without the essentials that you f- forgive yourself of every day? I mean, they get up in the morning and they brush their teeth with a synthetic toothbrush that comes from oil and gas. And the list goes on and on from there. And there, there's little to no argument about that. You know, their, their lives are fueled by the very thing they wish to regulate into non-existence. To what end? What what's the what's the alternative that's going to allow us to have balance between both? And they don't have that answer. So why do you regulate our lives to the point where we can't afford to live? Right. And and you're not you're not opposed to all regulation. I mean there ought to be some regulation of of all energy production, you just want it to be sensible and minimal uh, regulation, correct? Well, it it, it does, uh, you know. And this is a this is a great instance. I remember as a kid driving down River Road, going towards Kennywood, and the hills ran red with iron water from the coal mines, and the the former lack of regulation, you know. And then. In the early 90s, those regulations started to change, and now it's it's almost non-existent. You don't see it. You have cleaner, better waterways. I mean, just just the rivers, streams, and lakes in, in southwestern Pennsylvania have bounded back because of a good type of regulation that, you know, forced an industry to change things, yes. Was it impactful? Yes. Was it... Did it break that industry? No, it, it didn't. And it was it was a regulation that needed to be put in place. But when you when you regulate it to the point where you can't can't omit or you can't discharge gas into the air, which has been common practice. Now you have to do carbon capture. You know, to, to what end? You used to just flare a well off and not worry about it. 
now the cost of energy because they want you to capture this is going through the roof and there's an entire cottage industry built around carbon capture and that's great it it, it created another micro line of industry but at the end of the day did we need it not really you know yeah. regulation creates jobs in some instances but it probably destroys more jobs in the long run than it ever does create. Well, and the difference between you, you talked about two different kinds of regulations, the ones that you talked about that made the water cleaner uh, while still allowing the industry to continue, but just made improvements to the industry. Those are, those are generally uh, more reasonable regulation. Some of the regulations we're talking about today on the oil and gas industry are simply there to try and kill the oil and gas industry so that people will choose a different form of energy. And that's that's government picking winners and losers in the marketplace rather than a reasonable regulation to try and protect our environment. Right. It absolutely is. You know, yeah. The, the- well, listen, Matt, think oh, I'm sorry. Did you have a final thought? Yeah, I mean, if if you look at, you know, things like the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, you know, Atlantic Coast Pipeline and various other large projects over the last few years, you know, these these projects were, were set with, with budgets in mind, environmental impacts. There was years of surveys done on these things. And the minute a permit's issued, there are organizations and groups out there that have the ability to go directly in and shut these jobs down and stall them. And all of that hard work is laid to the side because of because of that ability not to have it up front during the permitting process. And I think that's something that if there are questions in this industry or a path or how a, a right away is laid out through the mountains and they're worried about something, that that is the time to have that conversation, not after the fact when it's all laid out and there's millions or billions of dollars sometimes on the line. There's thousands of lives that are impacted by that. I mean, I've I've had friends that have started working on that project and came back three or four times now, and I see it daily on the job lines that you know there are people absolutely unwilling to go to those type of projects now and even be able to staff them because they are so afraid that they're going to spend money that they don't have because they need that job. But the the fear of it being halted again and again and again is overwhelming for a lot of the people in the energy industry. You know, they, they need to understand that the impact on all of the people across the energy sector is very deep. Yeah. Well, and if they're going to risk their capital, they need to know that, uh, you know, that, that, that there's going to be a, a payday at the end. Otherwise, they're not going to risk their capital. That's just common sense. Matt, thanks for joining us. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and bringing your experience, uh, both, you know, from your family and, and your own personal work experience and expertise uh, to the to the program. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. You bet. Well, as you can tell, these are the impacts of 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 overregulation and of trying to push us towards certain kinds of energy and away from other types of energy and politicians making those decisions. 
decisions rather than the marketplace making those. Um, and so always uh, have to take into account the people that are affected the most. And it's usually the people in these industries that are affected the most. Thanks for listening to another episode of American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.